don't know about you, but I've known a few people who have started projects and not finished them. Maybe you know some folks like that. Maybe you know some people close to you. Refrain from elbowing a spouse, but uh, it's a common scenario. And don't point either. I see that back there. It's a, uh, I think, a pretty common thing to get very excited about a home improvement project, maybe an addition, a renovation, and dive into it, buy the materials, get going on it, and get halfway through, and it doesn't quite uh, finish up. Don't have that same enthusiasm. It's easy to do. And I think even if you haven't experienced that, there's plenty of things in our lives where we start projects, we start tasks, and uh, it's too hard to get them finished. Uh, A very famous example of this is one of the few places in Scotland that I was not able to go to when I spent a little time there, or at least major cities, Edinburgh, Scotland. There is on Carlton Hill, outside the city, a, the National Monument of Scotland. It was begun in 1826, quite a while ago. It was a, supposed to be a memorial to uh, Scottish soldiers and sailors who had died in past wars. Um, It was modeled after the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, so you would all recognize it, except that it somewhat looks like that because it only got halfway done. They ran out of money within three years, 1829, and they still have not finished it. It's been called Scotland's disgrace, which is what happens when you start something ambitious and public that can't be finished Fortunately for us, our God is not a God who abandons his projects. When God declares that he will accomplish something, he will see it through to completion. Today's passage is his reminder to the Israelites that he has called them out of slavery in Egypt for a purpose and a destination. They are in the middle of 40 years of wandering around the desert And they may be wondering as they're wandering. But that will not be the final story. The promised land is still the goal. He still has plans to bring them there and establish them. It won't necessarily be easy and it will require their obedience. But it will happen. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. The last 14 verses, 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. This is God speaking to Moses, to the Israelite community. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them 
and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, give us understanding. Open our eyes and our hearts and minds to what you want to teach us in this scripture passage. Lord, we are not faced with Amorites and Hittites and those tribes, but this this passage speaks to us Nonetheless, as all passages of scripture speak to our time and speak of the cross. So help us to understand what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you haven't been around for our study of Exodus or have kind of gotten lost, we had a few different sermons, a Mother's Day sermon, a guest preacher last week. Um, Let me do a little review. Uh, We've been studying for uh, this year, and the first 14 chapters are the great story of Moses obeying God in leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, you know the, the bones of the story. The Israelites begin to wander in the desert, and they complain, and God provides miraculously sweet manna bread and water from unexpected sources and the, finally the, the community comes to Mount Sinai where God's presence is obvious from the thunder, lightning, the smoke and there God gives Moses not only the Ten Commandments but also the additional rules and case laws that would be governing the community life. Uh, that's also what we call the Book of the Covenant and we'll see that next week. Because as we wrap up these three chapters of speaking of these laws, the book of the covenant, now the next chapter will be about the ceremony where the covenant between God and his people will be confirmed. And then the Lord will lay out further blessings with how to build the tabernacle. Um, But here is a good place for God to remind his people to tell his people that if you follow me, we will bring down our enemies. So that's, I'm taking a a variety of verses here, the first four, 20 through 23, and then uh, 27, 28, and 31. So let me read that again to remind us. Behold, I send an angel 
before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You see in these verses that God is promising great success in the days when Israel will make her way into the promised land and come into conflict with the tribes that are living there. It's still a ways off. But God wants to give them that vision and that instruction. And Israel is told that they're gonna have two advantages, two secret weapons that God will give when they need them. There's an angel that's gonna go before them. And then there's a pack of hornets Now, it's possible, as many commentators and theologians all the way back to Augustine have thought, that this angel is the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, it's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament before he came as a baby, he became a man in the New Testament. I mean, the text does say that God says, my name is in him, and it indicates that he can pardon, transgression. So it seems to uh, many people that that might be Jesus coming. I'm not sure. I think it's a lot safer to assume it's an angel. An angel's been with them in Exodus. An angel brought them uh, the death and destruction uh, during the Passover. Psalm 34, verse seven says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And this surely would qualify. God says, I will send hornets. Um, It's not described other places in in, in scripture. I don't remember reading that, except in Joshua, chapter 24, verse 12, looks back on the conquest of, of Canaan, and God says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. So he announces and then he looks back. Now it's easy to look at God's instructions here and then in the texts that come later that describes the battles to come and to think, wow, those poor innocent tribes that just happened to be settled in the place that God picked for his people. God's pretty mean, right? Removing them, forcing them out, blotting them out, God says. They couldn't have deserved that. Perhaps that's your response as you think, 
about Israel moving in. But I want you to remember what God told Abraham 500 and some years earlier. He said, at that time, the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites is not complete. That's all the way back in Genesis 15. But now it is. This is God's time for the moral judgment against the Amorites and the other surrounding tribes. He has allowed their wickedness to continue for just so long. He has tolerated them, been patient with them. But now it's time for judgment. And this is hardly unique in history. God brings down tribes, nations. Just ask the Babylonians. Just ask Rome. And here Israel is the appointed hand of judgment. But it's God's decision. And so, always as we think, okay, how does this text apply to us? In case anyone is confused and wonders if we're to be that kind of judgment of God's wrath today, let me read something. John Piper reminds us, as the church of Jesus Christ, we may not imitate Israel here. The church is not God's instrument of judgment in the world. It is his instrument of evangelization and reformation. We have no ethnic or geographic or political identity. We are aliens and exiles. God's dealing with Israel was unique in redemptive history. He chose them and ruled them as a demonstration of his holiness and justice and electing grace among the nations. But to the church, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. The Old Testament is so often an outward picture of what the New Testament becomes inwardly. We will have spiritual warfare against principalities, the dark powers, but we are not to attack other nations based on this, other people. I mean, if we really understand spiritual warfare, unbelievers are not our enemy. They are captive to the enemy. Satan has blinded them, and we are to win them in love. But back to the text, there is a military game plan here for the promised land conquest, but God also takes this time to remind them that great blessings await. Look at verses 25 and 26. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Worshiping and obeying God for them brought nourishment, health, fertility, long life. And you see later in the prophets, centuries later after the nation had really turned its heart fully away from God, that the judgment of God is the reverse of that, right? It's drought and withered crops and death. But you can imagine how much the people needed to hear this at the time, knowing that they were in for a long 
time wandering the desert and then knowing that they were gonna have to take on these other tribes when they probably weren't very experienced militarily. They need to be reminded that not only would the promised land be flowing with milk and honey as it's described, but their lives would be specially tended to by their caring, protective, loving God. So, military victory, plus the sweet picture of health and prosperity in the land, will only continue as the Israelites obey. And the most grievous sin to God is the violation of the first commandment. And so he says, do not worship false gods, and repeats it, do not worship false gods. Two different places in this text, 24 and then 32, 33. You shall not bow bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. At the very heart of the covenant between God and his people is the explicit instruction that Israel was to be committed to God alone. There was to be no mixing loyalty with Yahweh and the false gods of the people that had lived there. Israel was not just to avoid participating in idolatry. They were to tear the idols down. Don't leave them standing in case you or your, their descendants changed their minds and just tried to throw in with, the, uh, with these other gods. Deuteronomy 7.5 says it even more explicitly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. But sadly, if you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that they struggled with that. Sometimes they did. More often they didn't. And they were often led astray. You may have heard the news this week that Baylor University had a rough week. I graduated from there 21 years ago and usually like to tell great stories about it, but can't do that this week. Um, Essentially, the track record for Baylor sports was terrible when I was there. If you had told me that they'd have Heisman Trophy winners and win the Big 12 and all these things, I wouldn't have believed you, I don't think. Small Christian school that tried to compete with these big, uh, great powerhouses in Texas. But a couple years ago, five, eight years ago, the program changed. And we all wanted to believe that it was amazing coaching and quality recruiting and that maybe today's athletes wanted to come to a little Christian school and take chapel and all that. I mean, Robert Griffin III sure did. But apparently somewhere along the way, Baylor's football program valued success and winning much more than they did integrity. Now, if you're following the story, I want to stress that this is still developing, not the, the whole report is not out. But essentially, 
Apparently, the football team looked the other way, or worse, covered up um, some serious incidents where football players violently sexually assaulted young women. And now, the president of the school, the head football coach, the athletic director, they're all being removed. There's talk of shutting down the football program, what they call the death penalty. And if it's true, if these allegations are true, then Baylor truly did bow to the idols of success in college football. They didn't follow what they knew was right and discipline the players who committed these crimes because they didn't want to lose football games. I couldn't help but see that parallel as I was putting together this sermon on this text. If you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And of course, as I talk about that, I'm convicted of my own idolatry of sports, of the programs that I'm loyal to. And so we always want to ask ourselves, what are the idols in my heart that compete with the Lord for my affections, my time, my attention, bad things and good things, right? And even more, what false gods, what ways of thinking have you picked up from our culture? The culture we live in that they pulls you away from pursuing the things of the Lord. Those are sometimes so hard to see because it's like asking a fish swimming in water, right? Doesn't know any different. We're, we, we are part of the culture that we're in. And so sometimes it's hard to recognize the values, but stop and say, what have I taken on from this culture that is ungodly, that is, pulls me apart, that divides my heart from committing to the Lord, that makes, becomes a snare to me? Now the last part of this passage that I want to look at is God's explanation of why moving into the promised land will not happen overnight. And verses 29 and 30 show the steady growth of the kingdom. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. There's a design, right? A reason that God makes it take a while to finalize his people's conquest of the land. If God had kicked out every other tribe and people group out of the land at once, the Israelites would not have been able to manage the land and the farming, which the text says would have made the land desolate, unfruitful. And wild beasts would have come in where the tribes before had kept them in check. God promises progress, little by little, which I'm sure was frustrating for them. And in fact, the actual borders that are described in verse 31 are not really fulfilled until Solomon's days, centuries later. And that seems to be true throughout history. God's kingdom advances slowly. 
We want our churches to grow. We want foreign lands claimed for Christ. We'd love to see the decline and fall of of European Christianity in America reversed. But that growth is, for the most part, slow. Sure, there's, there's revivals that happen in different parts of the world. Things have moved quickly at times. But it seems that usually God does not overwhelm his people with more than they can handle. Where growth has outpaced structure and churches can't handle all of the new growth, uh, there have often been problems, heresies, scandals. And this is frustrating, but perhaps it's encouraging too because Christianity has gone from Jesus and 12 disciples to slowly spreading around the world. And it can feel slow as we define slow, but it is sure and it is relentless. The kingdom of God is advancing and maybe you feel frustration that your spiritual life is not making as much progress as you wish. And yet, have you ever thought that might be a mercy of the Lord too? You may not be ready for more than what he's given you. You may be thinking, is there such thing as growing too quickly as a Christian? I mean, I, I would hope that our congregation members are growing. What I mean is, sometimes spiritual growth can outpace spiritual humility so that the one who becomes wise, theologically savvier, or one who makes great strides in cutting sin out can become very prideful about it and can do a lot of damage around those as they judge them. And when they progress stops, when they dip back into their previous sins, they're devastated because they're thinking, I was growing so much. And all because they haven't been Christians long and perhaps don't have a mature view of God's work of sanctification in their lives and the struggles and the highs and lows of following Christ. So I think it's a kindness that God matures us slowly so that we don't take that pride in teaching us to rely on him for our growth. But ultimately, we should be encouraged in our spiritual pilgrimage to circle back to the beginning, to remember to what we talked about in the intro, that, that God is a God who finishes what he starts. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Like the Israelites, we as Christian believers have received salvation. We have been rescued from slavery to sin and and given freedom in Christ. We have crossed from death to life through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are heading for the promised land, but the journey is hard and long, and we know that we will meet suffering and hardship along the way. As we cling to his promises and follow him in obedience, God will fight our spiritual battles with us 
and for us. And in the end, he will lead us home. There's a song that we haven't really sung at this church much. Um, If I had had time, thought about it, I would have taught it to the music team, but we don't know it, so you're just gonna have to hear me speak through it. You've probably heard it if you listen to Christian radio. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever. He is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. That picture we see in this text, that God goes before us. And the promise that he will finish what he started, that he will complete in us, that we who have truly been saved should have no reason to doubt that he will accomplish this in us. Romans 8, 37 through 39 completes an amazing chapter that the college and 20-something, college and career group's gonna study this summer all of Romans chapter eight, but it ends. Know in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing promise. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And we thank God that it is true always. Take a moment to thank God for what he's doing in your life. The slow work of sanctification. But that he is working and driving you to the promised land.